On Sunday evenings, I have been walking verse by verse through Ezekiel. And we're on Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5 this evening as we begin looking into these very unique prophecies found in the book of Ezekiel toward God's people. And then on Tuesday evenings, we are going through 1 John verse by verse at 7 o'clock. Today, we're going to talk about something that we have referenced somewhat regularly in Sunday school over the past several weeks. Evan, if you could be sure that anyone that has or needs an outline would get an outline for this evening service. I give an outline for the morning and evening service. If you would like one of those outlines, Evan will go to the back table and grab one. You can just raise your hand as he comes around and he'll be sure to get you an outline. It's just a very basic template of that which I'll be speaking this evening if anybody did not get one and would like an outline. And we're going to talk this evening about the consequences of God's people changing God's judgments. We live in a world, particularly in Western Christianity, where the church has taken a liberty that is not afforded to the church in the Word of God. And that liberty is to take the Word of God and to reinterpret it according to the understandings of culture and society. We've been talking about this in our biblical interpretation series in Sunday school that people will often take the Bible and they will allow it to be open to private interpretation, something that the book of First Peter tells us is not a valid means by which to approach Scripture. First Peter tells us that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. However, as we look in the world around us, we see this happening all the time. And while it's obvious in our generation as we look around us, we must keep in mind that the changing of Scriptures, that the the seeking to pervert God's judgments, to take what the Bible says in the Word of God and to twist it and to confuse it and to conform it to our own image instead of we reading the Word of God and conforming to the Bible is something that has been happening since the day the Word of God went forth out of God's mouth. People have been twisting, changing, and perverting the Word of God. For we know in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, that there is nothing new under the sun. Now, we learned this morning that from a purely spiritual standpoint, it doesn't really work to change the Word of God, does it? It doesn't really work because the Scriptures tell us that God's Word is forever settled in heaven. Regardless of what mankind tries to say about the Word of God, regardless of how they might try to twist it and pervert it and confuse it, it doesn't change the truth that stands in heaven. It doesn't change the fact that what God said is what God said, and mankind has no ability to change it, spiritually speaking. And so we know that in a spiritual sense, we can't actually change the Word of God. However, what we're going to see is that people have, even back in Ezekiel's day, sought to do exactly that, to change God's judgments, to pervert God's judgments, so that God's Word will conform itself to the sin in their lives in order that they might justify their own sin. And we're going to see that the consequences of doing this, particularly among God's people, are very, very grave. They're very severe. That when God's people take the Word of God and twist it and confuse it and contort it in order to get it to say what they want it to say so that they can justify a sinful lifestyle, God does not take that lying down. There are consequences and there are repercussions. 
Now, how I'm going to frame this this evening, as I regularly, fairly regularly do as we look into these prophetic sections, is I'm going to summarize what's happening in the book of Ezekiel. And after I summarize what's happening in the book, then we're going to go through our two points and we're going to seek to apply that which is happening in the book of Ezekiel to our lives today. Within the scope of this first message that God is going to give to Ezekiel, unto the nation of Judah through Ezekiel, God commands him, that is Ezekiel, to perform three particular signs. Now, all of these signs are meant to reveal various elements of one body of truth. And we're going to see that as we walk through it this evening, that we're, we're talking about one truth found in three prophetic signs. Take a look with me in Ezekiel 4, beginning in verse 1. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, and lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, and set a camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel." Lie thou upon thy left hand, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another, till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. This first sign that God tells Ezekiel to do. Now we recall from last week, Ezekiel's mouth has been shut. He's only allowed to open his mouth when he has a prophecy of the Lord. We recall some of the... the promises that God has made to Ezekiel that he's going to a people that, that are not going to be interested in what he has to say. And now he's going to do some pretty strange things. God first tells Ezekiel to take a tile, a big brick, if you were, and to lay it on the ground and to create a model of Jerusalem. Now, we don't exactly know how he did it. Did he draw the model into the tile while it was still uh, moist before it had been dried out by the sun? Did he draw the temple and did, did he draw the city and the walls? We don't really know. Or maybe he actually took little sticks and made a, a kind of a, a diorama, if you will, of Jerusalem and, and, and built it up and created this tile. Regardless of how he did it, what we understand from it is that by the end of his labor, everybody that looked at this tile, this brick, was supposed to know that that was the city of Jerusalem. There is to be no doubt that, that this was a portrayal of that city. Well, he was to take this tile, this city portrayal, and the Scriptures tell us that he was supposed to besiege it. So Ezekiel is working on this tile, and he creates all sorts of instruments of war, battering rams, and he surrounds it with an army. I don't know if any of you guys, when you were younger, used to have your old army guys, the, the, the little green army guys. I used to have a bunch of them. And I would, I would play war all the time and I would have little forts and, and you'd have all of your army guys, sometimes the super tiny ones, sometimes the bigger ones. But you would besiege 
whatever, Barbie house or whatever it might have been that week that, um, that, that your army men were besieging, sort of like what Ezekiel is doing here. He, he's setting up his tile and he's besieging the tile. He is showing a siege surrounding the city, ready to take this city. And then God tells him to do something else. He tells him to take a pan, an iron pan, and to place that pan between this city and himself. The city's here. It's surrounded with military might. Ezekiel takes an iron pan and places it between the city and the one who created the city and sustains the city. So that anyone in that city who would cry out to its creator for help in the midst of the siege would hit nothing but an iron pan. The cries of help the, the prayers would not reach the Creator. They would be cut off at the pan. Symbolic. And then God told Ezekiel that he was going to lay on his left side. The left side of his body between, well, he'd have the, the tile, the iron pan, and then he would lay on his left side, on the other side of that iron pan, for 300 and 90 days straight. And in doing so, it was expected that people uh, would understand, as Ezekiel proclaimed the truth of God's word, that he was bearing the iniquity of the house of Israel. Now, God separates here between the iniquity of the house of Israel and the iniquity of the house of Judah. Notice verse 4. He says, Lie upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it. Thou shalt bear their iniquity. And then in verse 5, he says, um, excuse me, verse 6, he says that you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. So 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah. Now what exactly is happening here is God is symbolically representing the number of years that Israel had sinned against him. We can't um, trace this back cleanly. We're not exactly sure what this 390 years traces back to. And here's the reason. The 40 years of Judah, if we were to trace that back, 40 years from when this prophecy is happening, it would take us to the days of Josiah. As a matter of fact, it would take us almost exactly to the days of Josiah's revival, if you recall the account of King Josiah. And so it doesn't make sense that that would begin the 40 years of iniquity. If we were to take 390 years back from that time in the days of Ezekiel, back through the days of, of Israel, that would have been even before Israel was created. It would have been back before Israel split from from. Judah and created its own nation in the days of Jeroboam. And so it can't mean a sequential counting back the, the years from when this prophecy was to take place in the book of Ezekiel. Most likely it was cumulative. That there was 40 full years that God regarded Judah to have been in iniquity between its various kings and the various times that it had fallen away from God without repentance. There had been 40 full years of iniquity. And counting back in the years of Israel from the time that they were in to the time of their captivity to the time of Jeroboam to the time even before that in the days of, of David and Saul, 
there would have been 390 years of sin in the days of Israel. That That's perhaps what God is doing here as he's asking Ezekiel to bear this burden. Now the question we ask is this. What could be the reason for such a dramatic and resolute refusal of God to hear his own people? Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. We know Psalm 66, 18. It's fairly familiar to many of us. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7 warns us in regard to fellowship with God. And it says this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanseth us from all sin. So we see that in all ages. All the way back to the time of Ezekiel and Israel. And even today, as we look at 1 John and as we understand the the implications of fellowship, God will not hear those who regard iniquity in their heart. There will be an iron pan, if you will, that will come between God's people and God as their creator and sustainer when we knowingly willfully regard iniquity in our heart. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this evening and you are not even a believer. You have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Well, the Scriptures tell us that regardless of the things you do, there is a separation between you and God. And that separation between you and God is not because of what you've done good or what you've done bad, but because you have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, the name of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us, whosoever believeth is not condemned, but whosoever believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you're here this evening and you have never believed on the only begotten Son of God, then this pan that God would place between His people and Himself is permanently there for you. There is a a incapacity for you to fellowship with God until such time as you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, according to the Word of God. The first sign, the tile, the pan, Ezekiel physically lying on his side, his left side for 390 days. Could you imagine? Lying on your left side for 390 days and then physically switching over to his right side. God said that He would enable him to do it. He says, I'll put bands around you and help you, enable you to lie on your side. Don't you move. You are bearing the sins of... of Israel and Judah, you are portraying to them the the grossness of their sin, the, the, the tremendous consequences of their sin. Look in verse 9 as we look at the second sign. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and fitches and put them in one vessel and make thee bread thereof according to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. Three hundred and ninety days shalt thou eat thereof. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight twenty shekels a day from time to time shalt thou eat it. Thou shalt drink also water by measure, the sixth part of an hin, from time to time shalt thou drink. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. And the Lord said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. So it gets worse for the nation of Israel. 
God has already portrayed in the sign that He will not hear them. That He is going to lay siege to the city and there will be no remedy. Now He illustrates the reality of what they're going to be eating in this time. God tells Ezekiel to take numerous grains, things that were very prevalent, would have been common among poor people, and to gather them together and to make pieces of bread out of this grain and to ration that bread into very, very small pieces. 20 shekel amount would be a very small amount of bread and a very small amount of water. And God says, for the entire 430 days that you are lying on your side, one side, then the other side, you will eat nothing but a small ration of this terrible bread made from very small, prevalent grains and a little bit of water. Now, when I was in college, we had a buffet line. And we had about seven or eight different choices of different food that we could eat, and it rotated day in and day out. By the end of the semester, I didn't even want to walk into that college cafeteria. There was nothing in there that looked appealing anymore. I'd eaten it so many times that it was just not interesting to me. And that was with all the variation that we had. And I tell you, by the end of my, my several years in college, as that food would rotate a little bit, but a lot of the same things, it just, it just wasn't at all appealing anymore. Now imagine this terrible bread and this little bit of water and having to eat it for one year and two months every day, day in and day out, while you're lying on your side in the hot sun with a pan, an iron pan between you and this tile portraying Israel. But not only that, it got worse. God said, by the way, Ezekiel, when you bake this bread, you are symbolically going to show Israel exactly how impoverished they're going to be. I want you to bake it over human waste. You're going to take the human waste and you are going to light it on fire and you are going to bake the bread over human waste and that is going to be the fuel by which the fire is going to be lit that will, that will bake this bread for you. Could you imagine what that would make this bread taste like? You know, the reason why I, I start up a charcoal fire in my, my barbecue is because I want my meat to have that smoky, charcoaly flavor. I'll throw in some hickory chips and it might pull in some of that hickory flavor from the smoke. This was going to be the smoke of human waste absorbing into his bread. Not, not pleasant. And he was going to be eating this for 430 days as a sign to Israel about the tremendous consequences of their sin and what they were going to be going through in this city as they were impoverished. There wouldn't even be wood to burn. There would only be human waste to cook their food. Now, at this point in our prophecy, Ezekiel makes an appeal. Look at verse 14. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted. For from my youth up even till now, have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself or is torn in pieces? Neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. So Ezekiel makes an appeal to God here. Now, he's doing everything God asked him to do, but he says, God, I have an appeal. See, he was a Levite and he was a priest. And so for the 30 years of his life up to this point, he had never done anything that would defile him before God's ceremonial law. 
And this was something that was very important to him. And to eat bread that had been cooked over human waste would have been a defilement. It would have defiled him before the law. And he said, God, I have an appeal to make. I've never been defiled to this point. Would you please allow me to not be defiled? Could Is there any way I could show Israel the, the terrible depravity of their sin without defiling myself before you? And God in his mercy and in his grace and in his love for Ezekiel says yes. You may use cow waste instead of man's waste and therefore not be defiled. It's still not going to be good. But God graciously granted him that at his petition. One more sign before we apply our truths this evening. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 5. Look with me, beginning in verse 1. And thou, son of man, take thee a sharp knife and take thee a barber's razor and cause it to pass upon thy head and upon thy beard. Then take thee balances to weigh and divide the hair. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife. And a third part thou shalt scatter in the wind. And I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shalt also, excuse me, thou shalt also take thereof a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. Then take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in fire. For thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. In verses 5 to the end of the chapter, God explains this prophecy. He tells Ezekiel that as he declares, thus saith the Lord to the people, they are to see some various elements in this prophecy. We've explained them as we've gone along. Let me explain this last bit to you. Ezekiel, of course, had a beard and he had his hair uh, at the uh, the length that you might expect of a Jewish priest. God said, shave your beard, shave your head, but don't don't lose the hair. Take all that hair, bring it together and put it on a scale and divide it into three entirely equal portions. And you're going to take one portion of that hair and you're going to set it in the middle of the city. Remember the tile. You're going to set it in the middle of this tile and you're going to take a knife and you're going to go chop, 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 and you're going to chop it. And then you're going to take a part of this hair, one-third part of this hair, and you're going to um, burn it with fire. And then you're going to take that last third and you're going to scatter it to the wind. He said, but out of that last third, take a little bit and hide it in your skirt. Hide it in your clothing. What he was symbolizing here is that one-third of the, the, the city of Jerusalem would be killed by the sword as he chopped it in the tile. One-third would be burned with fire as the city was sieged. And then one-third would be scattered to the wind, would be scattered to the Gentile nations, would be scattered all around the earth. Except for a little remnant. God said, I'm going to keep a little bit of a remnant. And they're still going to go through the fires of chastening. But they will indeed be saved. And so we see the prophecy unto God's people. And look with me in verse 6 of chapter 5. Excuse me, we'll begin in verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are around about her. And she hath changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations, and my statutes more than the countries that are round about her. For they have refused my judgments and my statutes. They have not 
walked in them. And so God declares judgment upon them. Now, as we apply this evening, we are God's people in the church age. We are not under the law of Moses. We are not under a physical Mosaic covenant. We know that. We know that we do not fall under the judgments and the expectations of the law of Moses. We fall under the, the expectations of the law of grace, as Paul calls it in the New Testament. However, as we look at God's judgment upon Israel, there are still implications that we can apply to our lives regarding God's response when God's people change His judgments. And as we just read, this is what happened here. God said, because the nation of Israel has changed my judgments and done more wickedly than the people around them and perverted the Word of God to make it say something that it doesn't in order that they can live in their sin, I'm against them. And so let's look at two principles this evening that you have there in your notes. Two principles of what happens when God's people change God's judgment. Well, the first thing we see is that when God's people change God's judgments, God resists them. God resists them. Is that not what he says in verse 7? Because ye are multiplied more than the nations that are round about you and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against thee and will execute judgments in the midst of thee in the sight of the nations. God says, because you have done that which you should not, you have taken the word of God and you have perverted it and you have changed it, I'm against thee. I'm going to resist you. Take your Bibles and please turn with me to James chapter 4. We will be back to Ezekiel in a little bit. James chapter 4 in the New Testament. This idea of God resisting people is not foreign to the New Testament. It's not foreign to the Scriptures. In James chapter 4, we see a circumstance. James asks a question. In verse 1, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? He asks a question, and he's asking it to believers. He says, Where do the wars and the fightings among you come from. Now we need to use proper biblical interpretation here as we understand what James is saying. He's asking about the wars and the fighting among them, believers. He's not talking about the wars between nations. I've heard many pastors preach this sermon and they say this is where war comes from. This is where this is this is what what it means when a nation fights against another nation. That's not what James is saying here. He's saying where come the wars and the fightings among you as believers? among you individuals in the church, among all of those Jews that are scattered abroad. And this is what he says. He says, Come they not hence, even of the lusts that warn your members? Ye lust and have not, verse 2. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. So he's saying some very heavy words here. You are, you are fighting. You're warring one an, among one another. You're killing and desiring to have. What does it mean here that they're killing one another? Were people in the church literally walking behind one another and and stabbing each other in the back? Well, no. What did Jesus Christ say in Matthew chapter 5 about hatred? He says, if you hate another man in your heart, you've committed murder. Did he not? James is often regarded as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
And so James is using Jesus Christ's own analogy here about those who would hate their brother in their heart as murder. And he says, look, church, you are hating one another. You are fighting against one another. You are killing one another by hatred. And where is it all coming from? Well, it's because you're lusting, you're desiring things but you have not because you ask not. And he says, you ask and receive not, verse 3, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. When you do ask God for something, you're not getting it because you're asking in the wrong manner. You're asking amiss. You are seeking to consume it upon your own lusts instead of seeking God's will and God's way. Then he says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think the Scriptures saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in you lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. James tells us that the Spirit of God is jealous over the hearts of God's people. That the Spirit of God does not sit idly by when God's people are full of sin and just allow the world to take the hearts of God's people. He says that the Spirit of God lusteth to envy. He's jealous over our hearts. He wants us back. And within this context, he says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is then his, his application. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. See, when we pervert God's judgments, when we take the word of God and we ignore it, or we manipulate it to say what we want it to say in order to justify our sin and we live in sin the scriptures tell us that God resists the proud but when we humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord when we submit ourselves to the expectations of God's word the scriptures tell us God gives grace he giveth grace to the humble if you change God's judgments God will resist you you will find that your prayers are hindered. You will find that you will not have that fruit of the Spirit that is intended to manifest itself in the life of God's people as we resist God's judgments, as we change God's judgments. Consequently, is it any wonder the American church is where we are today? Is it any wonder that when people can honestly write articles justifying homosexuality and abortion and socialism and whatever else from the Word of God, taking verses and twisting them and pulling them out of context and confusing them and distorting them in order to say what they wanted to say. Is it any wonder that the church is ineffectual in this land? God is resisting the church because we are proud. God is resisting the church because we have changed God's judgments and God does not take it lightly. If we change God's judgments, the Scriptures testify that God will resist us. Second, this evening, if we change God's judgments, unbelievers will reproach us. 
If we change God's judgments, unbelievers will reproach us. Back in Ezekiel. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5, Ezekiel says this. As he's continuing this prophecy, he says, A third part of thee shall die with pestilence and with famine. Shall they be consumed in the midst of thee? And a third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall mine anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. Moreover, I will make thee waste and a reproach among the nations that are round about thee in the sight of all that pass by. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt, an instruction and an astonishment unto the nations that are round about thee, when I shall execute judgments in thee, in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken it. God speaks to Israel here and he tells them that as they have changed God's judgments, the world around them taunts them, mocks them, reproaches them. As a natural consequence of their sin, the city would become a taunt, literally a revilement, and a reproach, a disgrace among the nations. The nations would see them and laugh at them because this nation, this city set on a hill, those that were supposed to be representatives of God aren't. They're supposed to be representatives of God, but the very manner in which they live their lives is contradictory to what God has told them to do. Now, the Scriptures tell us as believers that we know that we are believers because we love one another. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. Excuse me. Uh, that's how we know that we are in Him by keeping His commandments. Herein know we that we are in Him and He in us. He has given us of His spirits. We obey the Word of God. Because we obey the Word of God, we are assured that we are indeed children of God. That's our assurance. It's not how we get saved, but it's what proves to us that we are saved. However, there's a different standard by which the world around us knows that we are believers. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The public validation of our salvation, of us being believers in Jesus Christ, is that we reflect the love of Christ toward fellow Christians. This love will be so obvious and so distinctive that there will be no question that this love is supernatural. And so we see two concepts here. The one is that as we keep the commandments of God, we reflect our own salvation. The second is that as we love one another, which is indeed a commandment of God, we reflect that to the world. Now, when we as believers yield these distinctions, we yield our testimony. When we give up the distinctions that God has called us to have, we give up the testimony that God has called us to have. The world is not impressed by people who claim to follow Christ but live like the devil. They are not impressed when God's people pervert God's judgments in order to justify their sin. It brings scorn. It brings reproach. It brings ridicule to the church of God. Why? Well, because anybody out there can read their Bible, can open and can see Thou shalt not steal. 
Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And how foolish must they see Christians when we claim to follow Christ and we don't even live by the book that God has given us. How foolish must we be in their eyes. It doesn't make us more popular in the eyes of the world. It doesn't make us more interesting in the eyes of the world. It simply makes us hypocrites in the eyes of the world. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I see it all the time. Witnessing with with people, uh, going door to door, talking with people in parks, and they say, well, you don't even live by that book anyway. I've never seen a Christian that actually obeys the Bible anyway. You're all just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Have you heard that? Have you seen that? Why? Well, because God's people change God's judgments, pervert God's judgments, don't live according to the Word of God, and we think that because we're not living according to the Word of God, because we're, we're manipulating the Word of God to justify our sin, or we're ignoring certain parts of the Word of God in order that the, the world would see us as less weird, we think that we're doing something good. We think that we're somehow upping our testimony in the eyes of the world. We're not. We're looking like hypocrites. And the question is this. How can we win them if we are a mockery to them? How will they come to know Christ if the distinctives of the gospel of Christ cannot be found in us? How can they see Christ in us if we don't live like Christ? And that was the problem in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was called by God to be a city on a hill. To be a light to the world around them. So that anybody who looked at Jerusalem, who looked at Israel, would look in and say, this is a nation whose God is the Lord, and look what God has done, and look at the people, and look at their joy, and look at their, their relationship with God. I want that too. That was their charge. But instead of being distinct representatives of God, they had changed God's judgments to mimic the sins of the world. And in doing so, they became a reproach to the nations around them. Now, as Christians, we gain nothing by yielding our spiritual distinctives to the world. As a church, we gain nothing by reinterpreting the Bible to fit the whims of society and culture. We may gain a few more people in the seats, but what we will lose is the very distinctions that the world so desperately needs. And so this evening, as we seek to take the Word of God as found in Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5 and carry it over to our lives, I think there's a lot that we can carry over. There's a good amount of principle that we can carry with us this evening as we go out of these doors and into the world around us. And the first thing that we need to understand is that when we change God's judgment, God resists us. If you have been changing God's judgments, if you have either been using the Word of God to justify known sin in your life, or if you have been ignoring the Word of God in order that you might live in a life of sin, according to the testimony of James chapter 4, God is resisting you. And so you are not able to see the benefits of the blessings of the Spirit of God through your life, the fruit of the Spirit, as stated in Galatians chapter 5, because God is resisting you. But we have the solution. Submit yourselves before God. Humble yourselves in His eyes. And the Scriptures say He will lift us up. 
He will elevate us. He will give us grace to overcome that sin and to live a life pleasing to Him. Second, when we change God's judgments, we become a mockery to the world around us. If we want to win Buffalo for Jesus Christ, if we want to win Maple Lake for Jesus Christ, if we want to win Montrose for Jesus Christ, if we want to win Elk River for Jesus Christ, if we want to win Annandale for Jesus Christ, if we want to win Rockford for Jesus Christ, we're not going to do it by looking like the world, by becoming like the world, by living like the world. We're going to do it by maintaining God's Word, elevating God's Word, exalting God's Word, not by changing God's Word, confusing God's Word, and minimizing God's Word. That's what Jerusalem did. And for it, they were going to be besieged in the way that God showed Ezekiel this evening. One last thing before we go. Before we're finished. We're not leaving quite yet. One last thing before we're finished with our sermon this evening. Perhaps you've been sitting there today and we've already talked about the gospel just a little bit. And maybe you're sitting in that seat and and some of this is, is quite foreign to you. You say, I, I've never heard of of this belief on Jesus Christ and to salvation or it's something that you know you have never done. I have never believed on Jesus Christ to be saved. I know that that's something that I have not done. I, I, I do not know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I do not have that personal relationship with God. There is that iron pan between me and my Creator so that there is no fellowship with us. May I encourage you this evening. The Bible says, has a message directly for you. The Scriptures tell us that we're all sinners. Isaiah says, for we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as our uh, leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, have carried us away. There's not one person in this room who has never sinned. We are all sinners. And the Scriptures tell us that the wages, the payment, the penalty for that sin is death. That's spiritual death. And so because we have sinned, that iron pan has come between us and God and there is no fellowship one with another. The wages of sin is death. But, thank God, it doesn't end there. Scriptures tell us, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the problem is our sin. The consequences of our sin is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But there is a solution and it's not found in you and it's not found in your good works and it's not found in giving to the church or coming to church or wearing a suit or anything of the sort. It's found as we believe on Jesus Christ, as we accept His person and His work. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God Himself. He came down upon this earth, God in flesh. He lived 30 years upon this earth, having never once sinned. He died upon the cross to bear your sin in His body, having never sinned Himself. He died for you and for your sin, and the wrath of God was poured out on Him, not for His own sin, but for your sin. And He bore that penalty and said, It is finished. And when He said, It is finished, and He gave up the ghost, and he yielded his life on the cross of Calvary. They placed him in a tomb. But he didn't stay there. Three days later, the Scriptures tell us he rose again from the grave. 
Victory over death. Victory over hell. And because He rose from the grave, we can too. And because He was victorious over death and hell and sin, the Scriptures tell us we can too. And it's not found in our own ability, but it's found as we place our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And if you have never done that, may I encourage you to make tonight that night. That you would call upon the Lord, that you would tell Him that you know you're a sinner, that you know the penalty for your sin is death and hell, that you recognize that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself from your sins, but you know you don't have to because Jesus Christ has done it. And if you would accept that free gift that He has given to you on the authority of God's Word, the Scriptures tell us that you will be saved and you will have a home in heaven and you will be freed from your sin and the penalty thereof. And that's the message that we see from Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5 this evening. That that reality of God's Word, and the power of God's Word, and we recognize that we have no authority to change it, but rather to live in it. Let's pray.